Thank you for that reading, David. The kids are invited to kids' church in the new kids' room, which is near the old kids' room, slightly to the left, or right, depending on which way you're looking at it from. This is our sixth Sunday in the uh, Psalms of Ascent. Uh, my TV in the back isn't working today, so I'm going to be like, there is everything. Um, but this is our sixth Sunday in the Psalms of Ascent. And these, these psalms we've been walking with are sort of these psalms that have been compiled together or were originally together of the psalms of ascent up into Jerusalem to the holy city of God. And these are the songs of the pilgrim people are moving on their way. One of the things that we've looked at as we talk about this is that for Christians, and incidentally enough, for the original singers of the psalm, it's about this movement towards God. See, it seems that at least some portion of these psalms came out of a period of exile anyways. They're talking about the soul's movement towards this holy place where God resides, not just their, their movement in this pilgrimage towards Jerusalem. And so this is the series in which we are looking at the way in which the church is a people in the world who exist in this way that we don't have our home already before us, but we are constantly sort of journeying, journeying towards it. One of the things that we talked about the first uh, week is that this idea is that um, first God comes to us, and this would be true for the Jews and for us, and that's what makes the ascent possible. If God doesn't stoop down, if God doesn't come near, there is no ascent that's possible. It becomes sort of this endless quest for protect, perfection with no end in sight. But as God and Jesus Christ, or God for Jews, in making a holy city and residing among them, that makes it possible for us to even to undertake this journey. And the second thing is, is we existed as a people who are placed in the world as more like a pilgrim people. We read a book um, last year, which I still think best encapsulates, encapsulates a lot of what we're trying to do at the Finance Church called Resident Aliens. Um, that we are residents, but we are also foreigners at the same time in this world. That we don't have a permanent home or place that we can sort of stake out, because we're in flux going towards God, and God is coming towards you. Uh, another way of putting it is that the church is a colony of heaven, um, and that we pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, that it comes near here. And so these are the ways in which we are trying to sort of live out in the world, and the hope is that it creates this holy sort of discomfort, that we have this, this way in which we are, are able to live holy lives here and to reflect God in ways that are imperfect but, but reflect him nonetheless. But we have some discomfort in the way that these things aren't perfect. That these things only will fully be realized when God comes near to us again and restores his kingdom. So these Psalms of Ascent put us in the place of that people on that journey. Of a people who are not, um, a people who have, but someday that it'll be fully established. Now today's Psalm uh, is my favorite Psalm in the Psalter. Um, it's the one that I probably have memorized the most, and it's never one I've preached on, which is funny to me, because most pastors, we preach on what we love, and never, you know, just forget <laughs> forget that. Um, 
uh, I don't know how I've done Leviticus, but I have not done my favorite psalm, but such is the way of life at Defiance Church. Um, I think it says more that we won't go there. Um, then, uh, yeah, the, the problem is when those things come into your head, you have to like stomp them out like a fire um, and so that they don't come back. And so that's what I'm doing at the moment is trying to move on from, from that observation that I made in the second in my head. Um, but this psalm has this notion of sort of being this wisdom psalm. You know, psalms come in these various forms, but this this wisdom psalm has this way of sort of naming the way we are in the world. It, it names sort of a truth. And the way that I think this psalm is divided really well is between memory and hope. And so in verses 1 through 3, you have this notion of memory. And versions, verse, verses 4 through 6 is this hope. And so when we talk about the Christian's place in the world, when we talk about Israel's place in the world often, is it's this place between the memory of what God has done and a hope of what God will do in the future. And we stand in this place in between. We stand in this place cast between the memory of what God has done and the hope of what God will do. And so we have... Um, we look at this, and, and the way I like to think about memory is almost like faith. See, there's this, um, there's this phrase in Philippians 2, which I meant to print out but didn't, um, which is this great Christ hymn that we talk about, that you should have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And we often use this phrase to talk about how we are to be humble, to follow God, and to, to sort of move in the world in some way. But we often forget that uh, it begins with, um, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any, if any tenderness, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. This is the way in which we are supposed to do this. But but the thing I think about this is this phrase, if you have any joy, if you have any comfort, if you have any of this. And I think as Christians, we often move to the moralizing tendency. You should lower yourself in this Philippians phrase the same way that Christ lowers himself. You should have a view of the mind of one who takes on the mind of a bondservant rather than God. But the initial sort of movement here is he's saying, if you've received any of these gifts from being unified with Christ. Joy, comfort, some of his spirit. See, I think that in the early, or our church today, is that we forget that we do and we live out of this because we have some memory. We have some connection to what Christ and God has done. And so for us in this psalm, restore um, begins with, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. It calls forth memory and faith when God has done something. I think this is important for our own lives as we sort of read the scriptures and try to live holy lives is it comes birthed out of a relationship we've had to God. It might be possible to, to sort of enter into the Christian life through some uh, strong-willed obedience or something, but I have serious doubts about it. I think most of us need to reflect back to that moment. And so for many of us, oftentimes it's, it's a moment of conversion. 
It's when I prayed the sinner's prayer, when my uh, family explained this to me. Um, oftentimes for people who, who didn't go through that movement, it's when I went to college and my faith became more my own. It became a choice to go to church now, and I have to decide whether to take that on myself. And there are other places where it shows up in comfort with God, too. There's this, there's this place that it shows up in our own lives in this notion of deep, robust love and forgiveness. Next fall, this is a long time away, um, it, we want to start something called the Alpha Course, which introduces people to Christianity. Um, but one of the things that I was listening to a, a, a pastor talk about their journey with the Alpha Church Course, he said that one of the things they did in their study of it, they asked these non-Christians and some Christians and various pilgrims to, to say, if Jesus is real, have ask him to show you that this week. So it's an eight-week course, and you come back. And one of the women who was um, a massage therapist, New Age, had tried all the religions. This is around week or four they do this. And she said, every time I prayed, Jesus, if you are real, show yourself to me. I was overcome with this notion of acceptance and love. And she was like, and I went through the week. I did it the night I got home. I would do it in various things. And there were all these times where I would say, Jesus, if you're real, show it to me this week. And I was just continually bombarded with this love and acceptance. She said, I don't know what to do about that yet, but it's become very real to me in that way. If we are going to sort of move out in the Christian faith, it has to come from a place of memory and hope. Now, one of the downsides is there's the classic Sermon on the Mount of the Transfiguration. The disciples go up and they meet with Jesus, and the Spirit descends, and then they come down, but one, somebody wants to go tabernacles up there. But one of the things, if you've ever been on a church retreat where they get very emotional, is they say, it's easy when you're up here high on the mountaintop, but what are you going to do when you go down the mountain into the valley? This is classic last day church retreat stuff. Um, if you haven't done it yet, go on a church retreat. It'll almost be guaranteed that's like, hey, it's been easy here. But what are you going to do when you go down into the valley? I think it's mistaken in some ways. But there's this idea in which we want to live our Christian life sometimes in that place. Now, for some of us, the place where faith became real, where memory became real, where this connection comes, is not a place you want to live. So it's a place of loss. It's a funeral. It's a place in which your sin became apparent to you, maybe. It's a place in which you had seen the depths of something in which you don't want to go back. And yet there in that darkness, there's some light. But somehow God becomes real there. See, some of us, it comes in these nice places. Jesus, if you're real, show myself to me. Overcome with love and acceptance. For some of us, it comes in looking into the faith of death and darkness and depression and loneliness and angst and anxiety. And we find there that God becomes real to us in some way. That we were like exiles. That we were people who lived homeless in the world. And Christ became real to us there. Those people rarely talk about mountaintop experiences, by the way. They often talk about um, being raised up from depths. Being brought back to life and newness. 
But the argument I'm trying to make here is that this first part of the psalm, when the, restored, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. To remember what God has done to us. And this, this idea of, of, of that we were like those who dreamed. It's almost as if it's a, it's a different kind of life. It's something you have to almost pinch yourself to see if it's real, the goodness of what you find here. That God has either lifted you up or met you in some place, and he restores the fortunes of what were. Now, a small promo for Hampton's Bible study, but the literal, not literal, um, but if you were to look at the words that make up restore the fortunes, and it it's, if you watch the structure of this psalm, one of the things that we've been trying to, to, to remember is that the psalms are songs sung together, and they're also like poetry. And so as I study the psalms, and as you study the psalms, if you go slow, the problem is most of us go fast. Uh, so in my reading scripture fast, I always miss this stuff. In reading my scripture slowly, praying with it, sitting with it, singing it, you often notice things you don't. But you'll notice that this, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, is followed up in verse 4 in the hope verse with, Restore our fortunes, Lord. The Hebrew phrase there is this, uh, this, um, turning, turning, turn with turning. And it ends up translated this restored fortunes in most of our translations. But I think that the turn, turning thing uh, brings to mind to us that there's a almost like a return here. There's this movement that I talk about often when we study the Psalms, is that there's orientation and disorientation and new orientation. I talked about this at Skylark last year, if you remember, do you? Because I'm coming back this year. And uh, uh, Skylark is the school that they have a small chapel time, and I do my best. Um, my joke coming back this year will be, I'm back until I get it right, um, and then I'm going to stop coming. So I have not gotten it right talking to kindergarten to eighth graders. And those of you sitting here are like, who thought giving Matt that chance would be a good idea? Um, anyways, I love doing it. But there's another way of talking about that orientation, disorientation, new orientation, which is there's home, there's exile, and then there's the home after exile. And the Psalms sort of move in this way. So there's this, there's this home, and not all of us grew up with good homes, but there are solid places often in our lives. There's a place in which we have some sort of residency that forms us and seems correct. And then there's exile. Um, this is, uh, in the most stereotypical way, going to college. But in other ways, is, is it can be something that forces your family into a new place, your home into a new place, your personal life into a new place. It's something that says that home isn't the place anymore. And so this pattern in Scripture is that is that we, we go into um, Israel gains its land, and then it is cast out in exile. We're no longer in that familiar place. And this movement takes place over and over again. And then the phrase that there's a home after exile, there's this return that takes place. 
Now, for Christians, this, this ultimate return takes place when we find union with God and, and his return and we're brought into the heavenly kingdom. But, but in our own lives, there's this home that comes after exile sometimes. Let's say there's a grand revelation that comes up in your life or your family's life, and then somehow you return to a place of stability again. But it's not home. It's not there's home, exile, home. There's a place of residency of peace to some extent after exile. Because what happens in, in these moments of chaos and these moments of being thrown out is you don't go back the same way you left. It's often one of the challenges of life altogether is that we often try to rebuild home the way it was, rather accepting that after the experience of exile, after the experience of moving away, after the fracture or um, change or brokenness that happened, you don't go back to the way it was. You go back in a different way. The home after exile is different than before. And so we become these people who have seen God's faithfulness in our lives. Though Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with song of joy. And this, then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. This is um, something that we don't have enough of in the world today. But in Israel's, um, the Old Testament, there's this tension between what Israel is supposed to do and how it's supposed to relate to the other nations. There's this fear in part of the Old Testament that the other nations will lead us into prostituting ourselves and leaving God and making these things. And so we become sort of these holy enclave on the side, which is true. I don't, I don't intend to play these things off each other. If you wanted to get into Old Testament studies today, there are those who do play sort of holiness and... Um, uh, justice off each other, and I don't think that's wise. And then there's this other notion that Israel deals with, is that we are a light to the nations. Not everybody is us, but when they look at us, they can see how life is supposed to be structured in some ways. So in those long, boring parts of Leviticus, there were justice laws that were not really seen throughout the ancient Near East in any other way whether it's how to deal with slavery or somebody who murdered um, somebody whose cow murdered your son. All these sort of things became more ways of... It's a very weird example, but it gets to the rubber meets the road in some ways. Um, you would just go kill their son, which is not the way it's handled in the book of Leviticus. There's these ways in which they are supposed to model something else to the world. And what happens in these passages, Isaiah is one of the most famous where this sort of light beams out and the nations flood towards the temple, flood towards God, is this mission sort of way. This should not be as surprising to us because we're the greatest example of this, this except for Carla, who is quarter Jewish? Half. Half, half Jewish. But for the rest of us, that the light of the nations, the light of Israel has become the light of the nations and we come towards it. That we are outsiders to them. That what God does in Jesus Christ is this light shines, and so that even the Gentiles say, The Lord things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we've been brought into that spot. The thing that got me started on this that I was thinking of is that we don't testify enough to each other, which is maybe a thing that we Christians should do in the world more for each other, but we should also do 
more for those on the outside, is testify that great things have been done to you. God has done great things for you. I think we keep those observations to ourselves more often than not. Um, and so it's, it's not incidental that when somebody becomes a Christian today and changes their lives, that their Gentile co-workers don't say that the Lord has done great things for you. I don't think it's because that, that there's some sort of anti-Christian bias there necessarily, as much as we don't testify that way in the world anymore. What does it mean to say that the Lord has done great things for us? That God has been kind to us. And so we have in the first half of this psalm, this place of memory and of faith, of recalling what God has done in the world. And it brings us to songs of joy. But the, the thing about scripture and the psalms is they tell the truth. They don't just say that that is the Christian life. It doesn't just leave you in the place of, this is what God has done. You are fine from now on. But it says, now, Lord, restore our fortunes. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of hope, carrying sheaves with them. The second half of the psalm calls out this place of hope in the world. God, who has restored fortunes, who has been faithful, who has shown himself to us in the past, do so again. Make yourself real in that way to me again. You've done it before. Now is the time to do it again. The second sort of half of the psalm deals with the virtue that we call hope. It's things hoped for. Now, there's this classic part in Romans where Paul talks about of the things hoped for. You don't hope for what you already have. That hope is this sort of way in which we sort of look towards God's coming towards us in new ways. Or to put it in other ways, we don't live in the world where when you sow tears, you reap a harvest of joy yet. We live in, in, in this is the, the sort of eschatological, which is a big word of putting, we live in the already not yet of the kingdom. The kingdom is already in some ways, and yet it is not yet in others. We exist in the world in which Christ has already redeemed us and brought us into his holy kingdom and is beginning to form us into his likeness. We are also not yet consummated in that way. One of my favorite ways of talking about how Christians live on hope is that we live on borrowed time. We use borrowed time for people who get like, uh, they were about to, um, the most famous one in this probably says a lot about my cycle that I think of is somebody who's on death row and then they say, oh no, you're pardoned, that you live on borrowed time. Like you've come to that realization. Often people who have gone through severe medical diagnoses but then recover will say that they live on borrowed time. Um, we can think of this in other ways too in our lives in which we live on borrowed time and the hopes and dreams that we have when they're fulfilled. Um, it may not last forever, but it's the time we have. My famous sermon illustration of this, and it's the one that I, I hope didn't stick with you because it's so awesome. Some of you weren't here then yet. Is um, remember when in Hawaii about a year and a half ago, a nuclear 
attack alarm went off on everybody's cell phone, like an orange alert. And it took about 20 minutes for them to get out that it wasn't real, right? Um, the Christian notion of hope and borrowed time is not negative. <laughs> we're not dying in a nuclear holocaust or something like that. But it's positive in the sense of that word has gotten to us. That God intends to redeem creation, to remake creation, to bring about a new heavens and new earth. To make us full and complete in him and give us union with him in a world where tears are wiped away, in which death no longer reigns, and in which we can try to find true community and homes, the home after exile in the world. And so we live in these 20 minutes, or 2,000 years, or 4,000 years, with the notion of what's here isn't the final end of the story. But something else has happened. So if you want to take this to evangelism, which isn't the worst place to maybe take it, is that we get to tell other people that the nuke went off and is coming to white. <laughs> no, that, that God is intending to do a mighty work in this place. And what seems like victory now for death or the devil or destruction is actually, that's got to be my son. Yes, it is. Um, I think Kelly's getting him. Like, There's no way that's anybody else. Other than, that's, that was the sermon illustration of boom, boom, boom. <laughs> think about the, 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 the bombs. Um, no. Now that is not my car, I don't think. Yes, yeah, this is... We live with the car alarm of the present. Um, that goes off every day, by the way. I live like right over there, normally around this time, which is a miracle that hasn't happened on Sundays. Um, Brian, who's up right now, often points out that like I'm pretty unshakable up here on like noises or what's going on in the sanctuary. Until today, Brian, I lost it. You, you, I normally... I normally have got it down. Nothing phases me up here. And then all today and, hey, Gary, uh, all today, it all happens at once. You just can't win them all. We live time. We are the ones asking and knowing that God will restore the fortunes again. And it says, like the streams in the Negev. This is, this is the Negev, which looks like a place of mighty streams, doesn't it? Um, Shelly, did you go here when you were there? Yes. It was funny because I looked this up, and I know it's a desert, and I know it's a desert that in the ancient Near East they almost thought was cursed, that there was nothing good ever going to happen there. But funny enough, when you Google images for streams and that kind of, this one I think came from the top ten things to do there list, which I was like, <laughs> look at sand, walk. Um, it doesn't look, it turns out there's lots of archaeological sites there. Um, so that's what most of the to-do list had to do with, was um, going to archaeological sites. But this is the place that they call forth streams for in this psalm. Like streams in the Negev, restore our fortunes, Lord. That God is asking, they're asking God to make this a place of streams. Now, this is an interesting thing about this, is that this part of land, sort of like, uh, Brian, you said it looks like Wyoming. Well, I, I, I like it. Yeah, well, I know you guys like the desert, yeah. You guys could come up with a list of 10 things to do here. Um, but uh, 
To me, it looks like Grand Junction to some degree, too. Or, but actually, if, interestingly enough, almost like Zion, this place has this notion of when the streams do come, when it does rain heavy, it like floods. There are mighty streams that sort of come through. It's almost like mudslides, I think of it as, is that God brings streams out into this place. That this is a place that God transforms. They, they're using an image that's not an impossibility in their lives. They've seen this place go from this desert to a place of streams due to, due to severe storms. And so for us, too, we ask that God turns these dry and desolate places, these places in which there appears to be no life, into places of streams, to take places that seemed cursed with no place and to restore them. And it continues on that those who sow in tears would reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. It's not um, a shock to us that we no longer live in an agricultural society. But in the ancient Near East, there was a... um, this idea in which when you plant seed, you become an undertaker of sorts. You sow into the ground something that's about to die so that new life can spring up. Sowing tears is why this is one of my favorite psalms. Because what it calls forth to us is to, is to weep over things in the world. There's this uh, teaching that says that kings... People like that rarely weep and get to keep their thrones. But for the people of Psalm 126, for these pilgrim people, weeping is not something that weakens you in the world. Weeping is something that actually brings forth fruit. It brings forth life. And so as we as Christians sort of go into the world, and, and this is all these interpretations of weeping about Jesus wept. If you've ever been a youth pastor, let's do Bible memory verse. We, I pick Jesus wept, which is the shortest white verse in the Bible. And then you go back into wondering, what did I do wrong with my life to end up in this situation? Um, that is youth pastoring. Um, but the bigger thing is, is that Jesus wept. And we talked about this when we went to the Gospel of John, is that there's lots of interpretations, but there's one that we found particularly compelling which is that Jesus weeps at the sight of death still having power in the world. He knows that the final consummation, that the Lord, the restorer of fortunes, the ones who's going to bring about this end that we already know about, is going to stamp out death. And yet he sees that in the world. So what Christ does in his weeping over the death of his friend Lazarus is he sows seed. He sows something that would be a harvest of sorts. Such it is for us to be a people who can weep properly. It's not often the point of the sermon to go out crying. um, But it is for us to find places in the world where we see dysfunction, addiction, brokenness. In the biggest sense, death has its rule. And to sow seeds, knowing that those seeds come back with a harvest, that those seeds can transform the world. 
And so what Brian read for us from John is that a seed must fall to the ground and die before it can bring forth fruit. Is for us. And there's this there's this thing that they that they said in the ancient Near East, or one person said, is do not laugh when you sow, or you will weep when you reap. Do not laugh when you sow seed, or you will weep when you reap the harvest. In a society that's based on these things, of this sort of agricultural close to being, harvest is a time of great joy. Harvest is a time in which you bring out the finest and you feast together. For us as Christians, as people, is not for us to laugh when we sow. There are people who watch the world's destruction, some of them Christians, who find it entertaining at best. Don't laugh when you sow, or you will weep when you harvest. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It is for us to spread widely our seared tears in the hope that God's restoration comes, to look forward to the resurrection that God promised us. And this is the final thing, is that they go out and they return. It is for us to go out carrying the seeds of the gospel, carrying the new good news of what God has done. It is for us to come home, to have a homecoming. And so we as Christians today live in a place between memory, of faith in what God has done, with a hope towards what God will do in the future. And for us in the present, it means to be a people of love, to go out carrying our seeds of love and goodness and planting them. Because when we return, we will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with us. Let us pray.